Chapter Three, Part Two of The Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. That same morning, Landry Court found himself in the corridor on the ground floor of the Board of Trade about nine o'clock. He had just come out of the office of Gretry, Converse, and Company, where he and the other pit traders for the house had been receiving their orders for the day. As he was buying a couple of apples at the newsstand at the end of the corridor, Semple and a young Jew named Hirsch, pit traders for small firms in LaSalle Street, joined him. "'Hello, Court. What do you know?' "'Hello, Barry Semple.' "'Hello, Hirsch.' Landry offered the halves of his second apple, and the three stood there a moment near the foot of the stairs, talking and eating the apples from the points of their penknives. "'I feel sort of seedy this morning,' Semple observed between mouthfuls. "'Was up late last night at a stag. A friend of mine just got back from Europe, and some of the boys were giving him a little dinner.' Oh, he was all over the shop, this friend of mine. Spent most of his time in Constantinople. Had some kind of newspaper business there. Seems that it's a pretty crazy proposition. Turkey and the Sultan and all that. He said there was nearly a row over the Higgins Pasha incident and that the British agent put it pretty straight to the Sultan's secretary. My friend said uh, Constantinople put him in mind of a lot of opera booth scenery that had got spilled out in the mud. <laughs> Say, Court, he said the streets were dirtier than the Chicago streets. Well, come now, said Hirsch. Fat and the dogs? <laughs> he told us he knows now where all the yellow dogs go when they die. But say remarked Hurst. What is uh, that about the higgins Spicer business? I thought that was over long ago. Oh, it, it is, answered Semple easily. He looked at his watch. I guess it's about time to go up for near half-past nine. The three mounted the stairs, mingling with the groups of floor traders who, in steadily increasing numbers, had begun to move in the same direction. But on the way, Hirsch was stopped by his brother. Hey, I got a box of cigars for you. Hirsch paused. Oh, all right, he said. Then he added, say, about that uh, higgins Pasha affair, you remember that row between England and Turkey? They tell me the British agent in Constantinople put it pretty straight to the Sultan the other day. The other was interested. It did, eh? he said. Uh, the market hasn't felt it, though. Guess there's nothing to it. But there's Kelly yonder. He'd know. He's pretty thick with Porteous men. Might ask him. Yeah, ask him and, and, and let me know. I got to go on the floor. It's nearly time for the gong. Hirsch's brother found Kelly in the center of a group of settlement clerks. Say, boy, he began, you ought to know. They tell me there may be trouble between England and Turkey over the Higgins Pasha incident, and that the British Foreign Office has threatened the Sultan with an ultimatum. I can see the market, if that's so. Nothing to it, retorted Kelly. But I'll find out, to make sure, by Jingle. Meanwhile, Landry had gained the top of the stairs, and, turning to the right, passed through a great doorway and came out upon the floor of the Board of Trade. It was a vast enclosure. Lighted on either side by great windows of colored glass, the roof supported by thin iron pillars elaborately decorated. To the left were the bulletin blackboards, and beyond these, in the northwest angle of the floor, 
a great railed-in space where the Western Union Telegraph was installed. To the right, on the other side of the room, a row of tables, laden with neatly arranged paper bags, half full of samples of grains, stretched along the east wall from the doorway of the public room at one end to the telephone room at the other. The center of the floor was occupied by the pits. To the left and uh, to the front of Landry, the provision pit, to the right, the corn pit, while further on, at the north extremity of the floor, and nearly under the visitor's gallery, much larger than the other two, and flanked by the wicket of the official recorder, was the wheat pit itself. Directly opposite the visitor's gallery, high upon the south wall, a great dial was affixed, and on the dial a marking hand that indicated the current price of wheat, fluctuating with the changes made in the pit. Just now it stood at ninety-three and three-eighths, the closing quotation of the preceding day. As yet all the pits were empty. It was some fifteen minutes after nine. Landry checked his hat and coat at the coat room near the north entrance, and slipped into an old tennis jacket of striped blue flannel. Then, hatless, his hands in his pockets, he leisurely crossed the floor, and sat down in one of the chairs that were ranged in files upon the floor in front of the telegraph enclosure. He scrutinized again the dispatches and orders that he held in his hands, then, having fixed them in his memory, tore them into very small bits, looking vaguely about the room, developing his plan of campaign for the morning. In a sense, Landry Court had a double personality— Away from neighborhood and influence of La Salle Street, he was uh, rattle-brained, absent-minded, impractical, and easily excited, the last fellow in the world to be trusted with any business responsibility. But the thunder of the streets around the Board of Trade, and above all the movement and atmosphere of the floor itself, awoke within him a very different Landry Court. A whole new set of nerves came into being with the tap of the 9.30 gong. A whole new system of brain machinery began to move with the first figure called in the pit. And from that instant until the close of the session, no floor trader, no broker's clerk, nor scalper was more alert, more shrewd, or kept his head more surely than the same young fellow who confused his social engagements for the evening of the same day. The Landry court the Dearborn girls knew was a far different young man from him who now leaned his elbows on the arms of the chair upon the floor of the board, and his eyes narrowing, his lips tightening, began to speculate upon what was to be the temper of the pit that morning. Meanwhile, the floor was beginning to fill up. Over in the railed-in space where the hundreds of telegraph instruments were in place, the operators were arriving in twos and threes. They hung their hats and ulsters upon the pegs in the wall back of them, and in linen coats or in their shirt-sleeves, went to their seats or, sitting upon their tables, called back and forth to each other, joshing and cracking jokes. Some few addressed themselves directly to work, and here and there the intermittent clicking of the key began, like a diligent cricket busking himself in advance of its mates. From the corridors on the ground floor up through the south doors came the pit traders in increasing groups. The noise of footsteps began to echo from the high vaulting of the roof. A messenger boy crossed the floor chanting an unintelligible name. 
the groups of traders gradually converged upon the corn and wheat pits and on the steps of the latter their arms crossed upon their knees two men one wearing a silk skull-cap all awry conversed earnestly in low tones winston a great broad-shouldered bass-voiced fellow of some thirty-five years who was associated with landry in executing the orders of the gretry converse house came up to him and omitting any salutation remarked deliberately slowly what's all this about trouble between turkey and england but before landry could reply a third trader for the gretry company joined the two this was a young fellow named rusbridge lean black-haired a constant excitement glinting in his deep-set eyes say he exclaimed there's something in that there's something in that where did you hear it demanded landry oh everywhere rusbridge made a vague gesture with one arm hurst seemed to know all about it it appears that there's talk of mobilizing the mediterranean squadron darned if i know might ask that interocean reporter he'd be likely to know i've seen him round here this morning and you might telephone the associated press suggested landry the office never said a word to me oh the associated they know a lot always don't they jeered winston yes i rung em up they couldn't confirm the rumor that's always the way you can spend half a million a year in leased wires and special service and subscriptions to news agencies and you get the first smell of news like this right here on the floor remember that time when the northwestern millers sold a hundred and fifty thousand barrels at one lick the floor was talking over three hours before the news slips were sent round or a single wire was in suppose we had waited for the associated people nor the commercial people then it's that higgins pasha incident i'll bet observed rusbridge his eyes snapping i heard something about that this morning returned landry but only that it was there what did i tell you interrupted rusbridge i said it was everywhere there's no smoke without some fire and i wouldn't be a bit surprised if we get cables before noon that the british war office has sent an ultimatum and very naturally a few minutes later winston at that time standing on the steps of the corn pit heard from a certain broker who had it from a friend who had just received a dispatch from someone in the know that the british secretary of state for war had forwarded an ultimatum to the port and that diplomatic relations between turkey and england were about to be suspended all in a moment the entire floor seemed to be talking of nothing else and on the outskirts of every group one could overhear the words seizure of custom house ultimatum eastern question higgins pasha incident it was the rumor of the day and before very long the pit traders began to receive a multitude of dispatches countermanding selling orders and directing them not to close out trades under certain very advanced quotations the brokers began wiring their principals that the market promised to open strong and bullish but by now it was near to half-past nine from the western union desks the clicking of the throng of instruments rose into the air in an incessant staccato stridulation the messenger boys ran back and forth at top speed dodging in and out among the knots of clerks and traders colliding with one another and without interruption intoning the names of those for whom they had dispatches the throng of traders concentrated upon the pits 
and at every moment the deep-toned hum of the murmur of many voices swelled like the rising of a tide. And at this moment, as Landry stood on the rim of the wheat pit, looking toward the telephone booth under the visitor's gallery, he saw the osseous, stoop-shouldered figure of Mr. Cressler, who, though he never speculated, appeared regularly upon the board every morning, making his way toward one of the windows in the front of the building. His pocket was full of wheat, taken from a bag on one of the sample tables. Opening the window, he scattered the grain upon the sill, and stood for a long moment absorbed and interested in the dazzling flutter of the wings of innumerable pigeons who came to settle upon the ledge, pecking the grain with little nervous fastidious taps of their yellow beaks. Landry cast a glance at the clock beneath the dial on the wall behind him. It was twenty-five minutes after nine. He stood in his accustomed place on the north side of the wheat pit upon the topmost stair. The pit was full. Below him and on either side of him were the brokers, scalpers, and traders, Hirsch, Semple, Kelly, Winston, and Rusbridge, the redoubtable Laycraft, who, bidding for himself, was supposed to hold the longest line of May wheat of any one man in the pit, the insignificant Grossman, a Jew who wore a flannel shirt, and to whose outcries no one ever paid the least attention, Fairchild, Patterson, and Goodlock, the inseparable trio who represented the Porteous gang, silent men, middle-aged, who had but to speak in order to buy or sell a million bushels on the spot, and others, and still others, veterans of sixty-five recruits just out of their teens, men who, some of them, in the past, had for a moment dominated the entire pit, but who now were content to play the part of eighth chasers, buying and selling on the same day, content with a profit of ten dollars. Others who might at that very moment be nursing plans which in a week's time would make them millionaires, still others who, under a mask of nonchalance, strove to hide the chagrin of yesterday's defeat. And they were there, ready, inordinately alert, ears tuned to the faintest sound, eyes searching for the vaguest trace of meaning in those of their rivals, nervous, keyed to the highest tension, ready to thrust deep into the slightest opening, to spring mercilessly upon the smallest undefended spot. Grossman, the little Jew of the grimy flannel shirt, perspired in the stress of the suspense, all but powerless to maintain silence till the signal should be given, drawing trembling fingers across his mouth. Winston, brawny, solid, unperturbed, his hands behind his back, waiting immovably planted on his feet with all the gravity of a statue, his eyes preternaturally watchful, keeping Kelly, whom he had divined had some funny business on hand, perpetually in sight. The Porteous trio, Fairchild, Patterson, and Goodlock, as if unalarmed, unassailable, all but turned their backs to the pit, laughing among themselves. The official reporter climbed to his perch in the little cage on the edge of the pit, shutting the door after him. By now the chanting of the messenger boys was an uninterrupted chorus. From all sides of the building and in every direction they crossed and recrossed each other, always running, their hands full of yellow envelopes. From the telephone alcoves came the prolonged musical rasp of the call bells. 
in the western union booths the keys of the multitude of instruments raged incessantly bareheaded young men hurried up to one another conferred an instant comparing dispatches then separated darting away at top speed men called to each other halfway across the building over by the bulletin boards clerks and agents made careful memoranda of primary receipts and noted down the amount of wheat on passage the exports and the imports and all these sounds the chatter of the telegraph the intoning of the messenger boys the shouts and cries of clerks and traders the shuffle and trampling of hundreds of feet the whirring of telephone signals rose into the troubled air and mingled overhead to form a vast note prolonged sustained that reverberated from vault to vault of the airy roof and issued from every doorway every open window in one long roll of uninterrupted thunder in the wheat pit the bids no longer obedient of restraint began one by one to burst out like the first isolated shots of a skirmish line grossman had flung out an arm crying sell twenty-five may at ninety-five and an eighth while kelly and semple had almost simultaneously shouted give seven eighths for may the official reporter had been leaning far over to catch the first quotations one eye upon the clock at the end of the room the hour and minute hands were at right angles then suddenly cutting squarely athwart the vague crescendo of the floor came the single incisive stroke of a great gong instantly a tumult was unchained arms were flung upward in strenuous gestures and from above the crowding heads in the wheat pit a multitude of hands eager the fingers extended leaped into the air all articulate expression was lost in the single explosion of sound as the traders surged downward to the centre of the pit grabbing each other struggling toward each other tramping stamping charging through with might and main promptly the hand on the great dial above the clock stirred and trembled and as though driven by the tempest breath of the pit moved upward through the degrees of its circle it paused wavered stopped at length and on the instant the hundreds of telegraph keys scattered throughout the building began clicking off the news to the whole country from the atlantic to the pacific and from mackinac to mexico that the chicago market had made a slight advance and that may wheat which had closed the day before at ninety-three and three-eighths had opened that morning at ninety-four and a half end of chapter three part two